0: Lord, we thank you for the privilege of having the Word of God breathed out by you through um, individuals and having it preserved so that we could actually read it and study it. And and through that, Lord, to to know you better, uh, to know your will, to see ourselves as we uh, look into the Word of God. And so, Lord, this morning, would I uh, be, Lord, simply your mouthpiece to and proclaim your truth. May we be uh, humble hearers this morning to not only receive your truth, but then to seek to live it out, seek to allow it to work in us for your glory. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, many of you know that it is often said that the ostrich, when faced with danger, will bury its head in the sand in order to avoid the danger. The logic is that if you can't see your predator, then your predator can't see you. Now, seriously, if that were true, there wouldn't be many ostriches alive today, would there? Because when they bury their head in the sand, they would become a greater target for their prey. Um, So ultimately, they would be extinct. Um, And and scientists have studied the ostrich and found out that that actually is a myth. Ostriches do not put their head in the sand in order to feel a little better about themselves. Um, What they do, however, is they dig shallow holes in which they lay eggs. And when they cover those eggs, they lay down. And because the proportion of their head is so small compared to their body and the color the background, there's an appearance that their head is actually in the ground. So this this is a myth, yet the myth has brought out an idiom that is often used in our culture. And that idiom, of course, is to bury one's head in the sand. So it's an idiom that comes out of a false reality, and yet it's an idiom that we seem to understand and we use in our vernacular, and it basically means someone who is unwilling to deal with unpleasant realities or possible dangers by pretending that they did not or do not exist. Now, imagine for a moment that that were true. Imagine if you and I were out somewhere and there was some danger or difficulty heading in our direction, maybe a tsunami, maybe an eviction notice, maybe there's an evil person that we see coming our direction. That all you had to do was pull a bag out of your pocket and put it over your head. Now, I want to market that product, okay? But we know that picture is ridiculous. Simply putting a bag over your head or burying your head in the sand will not get rid of the problem. Danger will still be there. Now, as we come to our text this morning, James wants to address... This issue of self deception, this idea of a follower of Christ to some degree burying their head in the sand. He's dealing with this idea of people who choose to ignore what God is telling them and ultimately then suffering because of it. See, deception and self deception is a possibility of everyone sitting in this room here this morning. And it's something that James is emphasizing Is a constant problem among his persecuted and dispersed Christian readers. Again, we did this last week, but let's do it again this morning. Let's go to the end of James, and let's remind ourselves of how he ends his letter. Chapter 5. And verse 19 and 20, he says this, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, how does that wandering take place? Well, that wandering takes place ultimately by... Being deceived, we've read about that already so far in chapter 1, but it is also by that individual not only being deceived, but being self-deceived and not allowing the Word of God to actually to have that root being fleshed out in their life. But go back to chapter 1 now and notice the way James uses this word in the verses that we've read actually just prior to it too. Look at chapter 1 and verse 16. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. They're talking about what? Your desires. And then in chapter uh, 1, verse 22, deceiving your own selves. We're going to get into that today. And then later in our text, it talks about the person deceiving his heart. Now, I think this is, this is really important for us, friends, because he's speaking to believers. And he's stressing to believers, listen, it's possible for you who are going through trial and testing to get to the place where you are self-deceived. And that self-deception leaves you in a place where you actually think that everything's okay between you and God when it's not. So friends, it's possible to be deceived when seeking to remain steadfast under trial. It's possible to be deceived by your own desires that draw you away and entice you to give into to temptation. It's possible to be deceived that hearing the word of God is sufficient. See, James doesn't want us to be deceived. He wants us to be pure and fruitful. So in this, next, this text that James is giving us, He's telling us that the word of God must affect the heart so that it bears fruit in mature living. And then based on the context, especially during times of trial. And we've talked about this when we went through Job. We talked about this even as we prepared for, for, for James, knowing that trials and suffering were all part of the themes that he's dealing with that we need to develop a theology of trial and suffering before trial and suffering comes because we are less likely to think clearly in the midst of that suffering or trial or whatever the temptation that is before us. So the word of God must affect the heart so that it bears fruit in mature living, especially during times of trial. Douglas Moo summarizes our text this way. The religion that counts before God and that is able to save the soul must come to expression in a lifestyle of obedience to the word of God implanted within each believer. Those who have experienced the new birth by means of God's word must accept that word by doing it. That's just kind of a big flyover of the text. And so from a structural perspective, there's really three parts to this text. There's a command. Then there's the section of illustrations. And then the last two verses are an application of what James has just been saying. A command, illustration, and then application. Let's begin now by considering this command. And it's a command that we all know, probably. It's, this is a passage that I think we are very familiar with. And one of the problems with passages that we're familiar with is... We think we know what it's all about, right? So it appears pretty straightforward. But be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. So it appears straightforward, saying don't be deceived by being a hearer of God's word and not then being a doer. But what does that mean? What is James getting at that we need to pay attention to because certainly both hearing God's word and doing God's word are important And so James ultimately in the bigger picture of the context is saying we must both listen to God's word and do it or apply it and I would like to to kind of walk through some of the thinking here not necessarily all based on the flow of the text but kind of interacting with the text I think there is in our Christian culture a problem of hearing only. And we must be honest about that. There is certainly the importance of receiving the implanted word. James has been emphasizing that importance of of receiving this implanted word, and he's challenged his readers that they be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So it's clear that James wants his readers to be readers or listeners who hear. Reminds me of uh, the story of when Jesus and his disciples stopped at Martha's house, and, you know, Martha is busy in the kitchen, right? In today's world, in today's culture, I think Martha would be held up as this is the person who is the real Christian. Whereas Mary, who's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening, is kind of like, well, all she's doing is listening. And so you can say, yes, there's a a problem of hearing, but if nothing else is true in the story, it emphasizes the rightness of listening to the word, whether it be in person, whether it be in a small group, whether it be in the context of church. But there's a problem with just listening. Like Mary, listening is good, but we can't stay there. We're supposed to listen. We're supposed to receive. Dick Lucas says it very, very sim- uh, simply. There's a real danger of coming to the Word of God for comprehension, but not for action. All right? We, we want to know, but we're not looking actually to do. We want to kind of grow in our knowledge, but we're not necessarily seeking to grow in our application of that truth. We pride ourselves in that, and we we hear that problem listed by Paul even in the book of First First Corinthians, don't we? Now this word here, hearer, describes listening in the context of an auditorium, much like what you're doing here. But think of it more in an auditorium where there might be plays or some kind of a musical thing going on. In other words, the listener is the audience and can convey a passive stance. They're there to be entertained. They're there to be amused. And so there is a warning here, even in the word being used, that our skills at listening can fall short. The the word literally means to audit. Anyone here ever audit a class in college? Huh? Now what does it mean to audit a class? It means that you must attend the class, hear the lectures, but you don't take a test, and you don't get a grade. Now, the benefit of auditing is that when it comes comes time for the day of the test, you can go to the beach. When that term paper is due, you can go hiking in the mountains. You don't have to worry about it. You're auditing the class. It's all good. And because you're only auditing the class, there's no pressure to perform. You're there. I'm attending the class, but I'm not really benefiting from the class by being tested. And I'm not accountable or responsible for the things that are being said in the context of that class. And when graduation comes, there's no cap and gown for you. So he's saying, don't be an auditor only. And there is a sense, friends, that when we began our Christian life, I would say this is probably true for you, that you had to learn how to read the Word of God, how to approach it, that you had to understand that you needed to read a particular verse or passage in its context, that the structure of that context also is a tool to help you understand what's being said. That you, you're not supposed to impose your own ideas on what's being said. You're supposed to find out what is being said and, and take it from the text. That different genres need to be approached in different ways. These are all things you slowly develop and learn. And, and those are all good things. The problem comes when we've been Christians for a while and we've heard lots of sermons and we've read the Bible many times and we've attended class a lot. We might even get to the place where we feel like we already know what is going to be said. And friends, such familiarity can cause us to become lazy with our listening posture, even to the point that we shut it down. So friends, James is is getting practical for a purpose here. And he's saying to his readers, listen, you can't just be A hearer. And hearing alone is insufficient. You know, someone once asked a pastor, how long does it take you to prepare a sermon? His answer was 20 years and 20 minutes. Now, I'd like to meet this pastor because I have no idea how he does it in 20 minutes. And I found that I take just as long now as I did 20 years ago. And part of that is because when I come to a text that I've preached on before, I'm finding new, fresh insight that either my other study of scripture is adding to, or my experience in life now um, brings light to. Now, the, the point here is this, we can't get to the place where we say, I, I've done enough. I mean, what would it be like for me? And This is, this is not a wrestling match for me, in fact, I, 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 I don't like to do this at all. But it's really tempting, in in one sense, to say to yourself, this is me speaking to myself, Rod, save yourself time and just preach the sermon series you did 25 years ago. Why not? The scripture should be the same 20 years ago as it is today. But there's something about the need to go back and hear again. About being refreshed in that text. So there's a problem with hearing only. There's also a problem with doing only. The church often goes through these cycles of emphasis on different things. And right now, or for past 20 or 30 years, there has been an emphasis, a re-emphasis, in the centrality of the gospel and the preaching of the word. Not in kind of a, a spot way, but kind of a, a working through the text of God's word in a holistic way. And that's a good thing, friend. We need that. The church desperately needs that. But in order to be relevant, there are some who have said, we need to be actively involved in our communities to be seen, to make a difference, and to further the gospel. No problem there. But in an effort to show their commitment to being doers of the word, They've canceled their Sunday morning gatherings maybe once a month, and they're saying, we're gonna go out and use our energies on that morning to do ministry in the community. Now, I commend them for their desire to use their gifts to serve their communities, but there is, in my opinion, a problem with that kind of thinking. And it can say to the people, doing is much more important than listening. Now, I'm a guy. When I get something from IKEA, it comes with a manual, right? Which, as a guy, means nothing. <laughs> but there's a reason there's a manual there. Because IKEA, they never put stuff together normally right there's always some strange kind of screw that you have to do this one first before you do this because when it comes time to put this on there you're not going to be able to get back in there to do you know it's all this complicated stuff so there's this sequential thing there's something about this manual that is important for the actual putting together of this whatever it is piece of furniture and the same is true friends when it comes to our listening and our doing Doing is important, I don't want to deny that, it's very important. But the mantra has, has more recently been we're spending too much time learning and listening, and we need to put all of that into practice. Again, element of truth, not denying that there could be the possibility that that is true, but the danger here is the diminishing of the importance of listening, and it also runs the risk of doing that is not fueled by listening? Do we really want people doing ministry in the community who do not have a solid understanding of the word of God and the gospel that they're supposed to be going out and doing it for? It's not one or the other, is it? Both are necessary. So there's a problem to do without hearing. We call that... Well, the first one, two extremes, would be knowledge without zeal. Or you could put it this way, knowledge without application. The opposite of that, with these two extremes, would be zeal without knowledge. Or application without knowledge. There must be knowledge before application can be made. And listen, even if you just open the pages of the Bible, you'll find many times, in particular, Paul lays out knowledge first and then application second, right? Here are the indicatives, the truths, the things you need to know, and here is now how you need to live based on those things, right? Knowledge, application. Both are important. And so to have one only is insufficient, if you're just a hearer. If you're just a doer, you run the risk then of being self-deceived into thinking you're doing things for God that are good and right when you don't even know because you haven't taken the time to listen, okay? Now, that brings us then back to this statement, the command is to both hear and do. They go together. This is an echo of the teaching of Jesus in these words, right? The parable that Jesus gives of the two builders, the one who built his house upon the the sand and the one who built his house upon the rock. And notice what it says here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. You hear the words and you do them rock. Go down to verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You see, the the point that he's making is you're either listening and applying or you're hearing and not applying. And these are the end results. So what James is doing is he's echoing that. James is fully aware of people's ability to hear words without letting them affect their lives. So ultimately, he's calling for his readers to be both active hearers and fruitful doers. But the emphasis here is on the fruitful doing because just a few verses back, he's emphasized the importance of being an active hearer. Okay? Now, so this is what happens many times is people come to a passage like this and they take it and they don't look around the context to understand what is actually being said. He's not saying that hearing is bad. He's saying a certain kind of hearing is bad when there is no application of what is being communicated. So what does James mean by doing? To do expresses the idea of one's whole personality, the mind, the soul, the spirit, the emotions. So it's a word that is not emphasizing merely what someone does, but who that person is. It's not about doing a task. It's about being a kind of person. That's a really important distinction. And if that person is implanted by the word of God, That word will bear fruit in that person's whole being and in turn will bear fruit in attitudes and a lifestyle that is pure, undefiled, and doing good works. Now, Paul in 2 Timothy talks about a pastor and he uses three illustrations of a pastor. Talks about him being a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. So let's just take those those three illustrations there. I can learn to shoot a gun or wield a sword in a quick skirmish, but that doesn't make me a soldier. I can go out and run around the track one day, maybe get around the track. That doesn't make me an athlete. I can plant a few seeds and occasionally throw some water on them, but that doesn't make me a farmer. See, James is not focusing so much on tasks as he is on being that bears fruit in certain activities. It's a big distinction. See, I can dabble in all of these disciplines that I mentioned here, but God isn't interested in his disciples dabbling. He is aiming at our whole being. The word of God would have so much effect on us that it would affect how we think. It would affect our emotions. It would affect uh, just how how we view the world and then the choices that we make. So to be a doer is to embrace God's word with your whole being so that your doing naturally flows out of your being. So doing isn't saying to yourself, well, if I'm going to please God, based on this passage, I need to take Tuesday night and go out and feed an orphan. Got that done, cha-ching. Now I can go on with my life. See the distinction there? What he's saying here is this is what a true disciple looks like. They have a certain attitude, they have a certain reality that is the result of the word of God taking root in their heart. And they're thinking about the word of God, and and that word is is having an effect now on on them. So it isn't God wanting us to check off the boxes to satisfy our consciences or to assuage our guilt. He's aiming higher than that, friends. He wants us to have a doing heart because we have a word-filled heart. Now, friends, are you guilty of thinking that it's okay with God that you're auditing your Christianity? That you come to church and you both hear and sing gospel-centered songs. You have warm interactions with brothers and sisters in Christ. You listen to an hour-long sermon that is seeking to press the word of God into your heart but not feel any responsibility to have that word presence and that gospel emphasis actively applied to your heart and life in that moment on that day. You're just sliding in, going through the motions, and sliding out. And there's no hunger or desire or reality or recognition of any kind of emphasis of change that is going on in you? Have we stopped listening to the word? Are we wandering in our Christian faith to the point that we really don't think we need it anymore? Or that we know most of it and so don't need to listen? How How do we get ourselves to that place? I just jotted a few things down. They're not up on the screen, so... Um, You can just listen to them as I mentioned. How how do we get to that point in our Christian lives? Well, we become self-centered rather than God-dependent. We become arrogant rather than humble. We become distracted by the world rather than attracted to Christ. We've become spiritually lazy rather than spiritually disciplined. We've become worldly in our thinking, caught up with the the world's kind of thinking rather than holy in our thinking. We've become enslaved once again to sin which then has its way with us rather than living free through the gospel. We've become blind to our sinful condition rather than honest about where we need help. Now these are, just, these, are, these are nuances in our Christian walk, friends, but they're nuances that get worse and worse if they're not checked by our time with the Word of God and our humility before, uh, before God and by virtue of the Holy Spirit doing His work in us. We have convinced ourselves, friends, that everything is okay between us and God, when in fact we are in grave danger. James wants to warn his readers of that reality and of that possibility. And if James wants to warn his readers, then friends, I want to warn Gateway Bible Church. And I am part of that too. So, there's a command to obey. will we obey it? Will we pursue being as a result of the word of God taking its effect in us so that it fleshes out in this kind of doing that James is talking about? So let's now move on to these illustrations. An illustration to grasp. There's an illustration followed by an assertion. The positive assertion is given in comparison to this negative illustration. and There's some questions for comparison that are To be asked here, the question, what? What are the two people looking at? You have one who's looking at their own face in a mirror. You have another person who's looking at the perfect law of liberty. What's the comparison? What's going on there? You have the question, how? How are they looking? Is there something that's different? Now, many people, because we're familiar with this, will say, well, the the first person has a hasty glance at the mirror and then they go on their way. But I want to challenge you to actually look very, very carefully at what is being said. And what is the result of their looking? Well, the first one forgets, the second one perseveres. But let's, let's jump into these illustrations a little bit more, okay? There's this negative illustration, and it's marked by a person who's looking into a mirror. Verse 23 through 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer... He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now what's important friends and I don't mean to shock you but what's important friends is that we note that James is not saying that the Bible is a mirror. That's not what the text says. Now Certainly, we could say the Bible is like a mirror because it reflects back to us, but I'm trying to be very, very careful to say that is not what James is saying here in this text. He's simply emphasizing the fact that we tend to look into a mirror to examine our face on a regular basis. I wonder what it would be like if someone did a study to find out how many times every day an average person looks into a mirror At their face not that anyone would care it would be helpful for my sermon today but not that anyone would really care but we don't think about remembering what we see in the mirror we're not looking to take any impression with us so we forget I mean this morning I got up and I shaved I looked in the mirror I did not leave the house thinking about my shaving experience in the mirror. I wasn't driving to church saying, man, that shaving experience, that really had an impact on me. I want to I wanna remember that, that, that angle of stroke on my face because that really has meaning for me. No, the mirror is simply a tool in that context for me to look and to do what I need to do in that moment so that I can go do other things. So your Bible intake is something that becomes so familiar to you that it really doesn't make much impression on you. You read it that day, you read it in that moment, but what happens in that moment stays in that moment. It doesn't go with you. A mirror looks here, sees, forgets, takes no action. These are all words that describe what's happening here. And I want you to notice in the passage here, it says, he is like a man who looks what? intently. This is not a quick glance. This is a person who is looking into a mirror. Now, psh, we got a flashback to James's world because the mirrors back then are not like the mirrors that we have today, right? Their mirrors were typically polished metal, often polished brass. And because it was not a clear kind of reflection, there was often some ripples and changes there, You actually had to hold it very, very closely to you, and you had to look, and you had to look closely to find out if everything is okay. Now, it's important for us because the person is actually working hard to see in that moment what is in the reflection. And I think that changes this image from how it's typically taught. It's not just that they looked in the mirror, oh, I'm just going to walk away. No, they looked intently here. They looked closely. But here, the man forgets. He takes no action, we would assume here. And it suggests that the forgetfulness is willful. That you can see the problem, but you're choosing not to do anything about it. So this person looks closely to find the problems that, are, that they see in this moment, but they quickly forget what they see, and they take no action. Then we have the positive illustration, or the positive assertion here, and it all has to do with this law of liberty. Look at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He would be blessed in his doing. So here we have that word blessed again, which we had a few verses back, I think in verse 12. A blessed person is now a person who hears by looking. Now what's interesting here is we actually have a different word for look in this verse than we had in the previous illustration. This is a word that means to stoop in and see. It's the same word that describes John, who's unnamed, but John, who comes to the tomb when Peter is there, and he goes in and he looks intently, he looks carefully, he looks to study what was happening in the tomb and the fact that the body of Jesus is gone. It's also used by Peter in 1 Peter 1.12, where he talks about, you know, this is the gospel, and this is what God is doing, and these are things into which angels long to look. And the idea here is of a, of a study, something that is actually persevering. Now, we're told here he looks into the perfect law of liberty. Now, when we hear the word of God talked about as the law, for some of us, we can tend to cringe a little bit. And maybe because of your, your upbringing, maybe you've come up you know, in the context of a church that's been really, really legalistic and the law's been thrown out there and you're like, ugh, law. There's something that, that bristles in us, maybe because it seems harsh or confining or abusive, but that is not the testimony of Scripture. I want you to listen to how the Old Testament Scriptures de- describe the Scriptures themselves. Here we have Psalm 19, verse 7. You know this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and the right, uh, are righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. We're talking here about the law. And not just the, just the law proper, but just the Old Testament scriptures in general too. They are sweet. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward. That doesn't sound to me like harshness or confining or abuse. It sounds more like a perfect word that is liberating. Well, we can go on here, and here's some other passages here. Psalm 119.45, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. That's from the NASB, because the ESV translates it a little differently. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. You love? How can you love something that seems... So full of bondage. It's because of what it is. (laughs) So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. Now, friends, it's just important that we recognize here that James is saying, listen, have this word implanted in you. You know, Go back in, in, in the kind of the logic of, of this whole chapter. You're going through a trial. Uh, my desire is that you remain steadfast so that you can produce maturity, you can be mature. Well, if you need wisdom, which you definitely do, ask God and he'll give it to you. And then he gives you the word of God. Now the question is, what do you do with that word of God? You see how this is all working together. This word of God now is the means by which you are set free. It's the perfect law of liberty. Kent Hughes says this. The perfect law that gives freedom is fuller, is a fuller designation of the word of truth, the word planted in you, and the word. It encompasses the Old Testament scriptures, but since it is perfect, It includes the teaching of Christ, the gospel, for Jesus fulfilled the law. So we go back here and we say, wait a second here. In this positive illustration, the blessed person hears by looking. But now we also recognize that this blessed person hears by persevering. And here's the distinction. This person hears the word. They're not passive to it. They're receiving it. And they are remaining in it. This word persevere has the idea of remaining, abiding, to stay in place. They, they press into it. So the person continues in it until it translates into obedience. So the key is that we don't forget what the Word of God is teaching us. And friends, this is, this is a pervasive An important biblical theme, isn't it? God is constantly warning the people of Israel not to forget his mighty acts on their behalf, but to remember his mercies in the law. He wants us to remember. He doesn't want us to forget. It's one of the reasons why once a month we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why? Because we don't want to forget. We want to make sure we remember, and that's not something we decided, that's something that Jesus himself decided for the church before he ascended into heaven. Now, to remember God, his acts and his teachings, is to contemplate on them in such a way that they make a lasting impression on the heart and on the mind. So the person who forgets what he has seen in God's word is one who reads or listens superficially, not imprinting the message on his soul. Now friends, please, I I plead with you when it's time to open the word of God, fight the natural tendency to be cavalier. Fight the natural tendency to say, oh yeah, this passage, yeah, I've heard that before. Fight the natural tendency to say, I wonder when it's going to be done. Fight the natural tendency to say, boy, I read that chapter and I just didn't really catch anything. In other words, work hard at how you are approaching the Word of God so that the Word of God can be rightly received by you so that in receiving it, it will bear fruit in working on your heart whole being and then bear fruit in living and life see this is, where, this is where James is taking us see I back up again and I say listen James isn't just saying hey listen hearing's good but listen you need to be doers so go, go do some things no he's saying you, you need to be receivers of the word but it can't stop there it's got to press on within and it's got to press on in how you live going to see that in just a minute. So we've seen an illustration that we need to grasp. We've seen a command we need to obey. And now we want to see an application that we need to pursue. Let's read verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, friends, here in verse 26 and 27, James uses a word that in our day is considered negative, and it's the word religious or religion. We often say Christianity is not a religion, right? Because we want to distinguish ourselves from the idea that religion is simply a bunch of dead rituals and human ceremonies and acts that are generally void of biblical truth. And I understand the point that's being made there. But that is not how James is using this word. He's speaking of public ceremonies and rituals designed to portray biblical truth. In other words, if you are claiming to be a follower of Christ and you go through the rituals of a follower of Christ, which likely he has in mind the Lord's Supper or baptism, then you need to be careful that you are not denigrating those things by being cavalier in them. And so his speaking to them about this, he is not denigrating the actual ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He's not necessarily putting the people down for observing them. He is exposing the possibility of observing those ordinances of the church or identifying with the body of Christ in a manner that is without substance. You may have done that already this morning in the singing of songs of worship to God. You know what I'm talking about. You start singing, and then you think about, Did I plug the crock pot in? You know, did I feed the dog? You know, what am I going to get for lunch afterwards? You know what I'm saying? These are all natural things that we fight. And we end up going through the motions. We're still singing the words. But our minds are in other places. Now, we we don't have worship police going on. I'm not going nudging you saying, are you actually paying attention to what you're singing here? These are heart issues that we have to wrestle with. But it's possible then to go through these ceremonies where we're proclaiming our allegiance when our heart has no substance whatsoever. I agree with David Platt, who says the following, and it's up on the screen for you to read too. He says, I'm convinced the deep, dark secret of our religious subculture in the southern United States, and I would say this is true here too, is that... We want Christianity and we want church on our terms according to our preferences aligning with our lifestyles. We are a people happy to go to church just as long as nothing in our lives has to change. We are a people glad to be Christians just so long as we can define Christianity according to what accommodates The only problem is that in order for the religion of Christianity to be authentic, true, and actually acceptable before God, we have to let him define what it looks like. And his definition of religion, his definition of true Christianity, is radically different from ours. Now, friends, we need to take that to heart. Is that where we're at? Has it all come to this at Gateway? I'm not talking about those other churches because we know all those other churches, right? We're talking about here. are talking about our congregation, our people. Have we become so demanding that we want Christianity our way that we stop actually even listening to the word of God? And then, because it's not affecting our being, Not doing. And I think people who are exactly like what David Platt is talking about can be people who are actively doing lots of things. But they're void of true biblical substance. Friends, that's a dangerous place to be. So James, what he does here in verses 26 and 27 is is both compare and apply two kinds of religion worthless religion and worthwhile religion. So let's look quickly here at worthless religion. And I'm just going to highlight some of the words from, from these two verses that, that either said positively or negatively, but kind of describe what worthless religion looks like. Empty. It's got nothing to offer because it's empty, it's worthless. Deceived. It may be active or full of knowledge, but it suffers from being Deceived, it, it shouts at us, we can be doing all the right things and still not be right with God because we have been deceiving ourselves into thinking that he is pleased with us when he's not. Impure, defiled, stained. These are all words that show the corrupt nature of this worthless religion. And, and the false religion that James is talking about is not Islam, It's not Mormonism, it's not Catholicism, it's not Shintoism or whatever else. He's talking about a form of Christianity that's lost its way. That cares more about the ritual than truly walking with God. Or that has become a subculture of its own. That has reduced itself to morality. Or that has drifted so as to be a political viewpoint. And friends... This is a big-picture application of what worthless religion looks like. And its application may not kind of resonate with you, but on a more personal level and in the context of testing and trials, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ may respond in a similar manner, seeking God's wisdom in their trial, hearing counsel from God through his word, but failing or unwilling to put it into practice. I mean, as a pastor, I, you know, I, I, on a regular basis, people come and say, Pastor, this is what I'm going through. I would like some wisdom and some counsel. And so I take them to the Word. I show them what the Word of God says. And they're like, yeah, I, I just don't know if that. If that you know, I've tried that before. Okay. I, I can't stiff arm you to hear God's Word and to apply it. I can't. I can plead with you. I can show you how maybe someone else has pointed that out to you and said all you need to do is you know, memorize this verse and it will be fine. And that's not the point at all. But the word of God received in the heart and applied is the means by which God is instructing us and giving us counsel. We might hear the word of God, respect it, and champion its presence. But the word of God is not received in our hearts in a way that has any lasting effect. We simply walk away having heard the word and are oblivious to the fact that it is not at work in our hearts. We're happy as a lark. We've got our church, and we've got our lifestyle. Everything's good. And God's looking down, and He's saying, "Boy, it's not. You have been deceived. You are self-deluded." That's worthless religion. Now let's think about worthwhile religion. Again, using those same words but turning them around, it's worthwhile. It's clear thinking. All right, it's not deceived. It's pure, it's undefiled, it's unstained. Interesting. James will later talk about the wisdom that is from above. James gives us now. Three illustrations or examples of what pure and worthwhile religion looks like. It's marked by three things. The first one, of course, was stated in the negative in verse 26. I'm putting it in a positive to say here are three things that mark it out. Just to help us with this, right? So first of all, worthwhile religion is marked by a controlled heart. We're told in verse 26 that if anyone lacks, uh, thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This idea of bridle means to be controlled. It's a picture of of a a horse who has a bit in its mouth, and and, and this bridle is there to control that horse. James is going to talk about that. I'm saying that a lot, aren't I? Because James is going to talk about that. (laughs) Pure religion does what the Scripture says about the tongue. And there's so many references to the tongue in James that you might get the idea that the tongue is important to God. Now, why is the tongue important to God? Consider what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, and verse verse 34, speaking to religious leaders. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's not just It's not just the fact of the words. Those words are a reflection of what is going on in the heart. So worthwhile or pure religion is marked by this control in the heart. The example here being the tongue. Secondly, it's marked by a compassionate heart. It cares for the unfortunate. It says here, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The true outward display of genuine religion, a life that goes beyond the hearer to the doer, is to love those who can't give you anything in return. In the New Testament times, there was no government help for those in need. The poorest, defenseless most vulnerable people in society were the orphans and the widows because they had no one to care for them. And the word visit here is not simply just kind of, you know, sliding by or dropping by for a visit. It means pursuing, it means caring, it means exercising oversight, taking responsibility for them. And friends, through the years, That has been the church's responsibility. If you go back in history, you'll find out it was the church that was the place that cared for the orphans and the church that that just lived out these instructions. You see, God has a special place for those who are less fortunate. Listen to what David says in Psalm 68, verse 5. Father of the fatherless, describing God here, and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation." orphans and widows. Exodus chapter 22, verse 22. Now we're getting into the law in the Deuteronomy. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Some direct instructions. Again, in Deuteronomy, continuing in the law, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up with your, within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, And the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Okay, This is God's people caring for the widows, caring for the orphans. And then cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say amen. Friends, this is, this is the heart of God, and, and in James' day, it was the church that reached out to these groups of people. Now, there are a number of ways that you and I can practically live this out. I mean, locally, there's a number of organizations we could point you to. Bay Area Rescue Mission, there's food pantries that are local. Um, there are the homeless that you could just you know, stumble on um, here and there, but also in their encampments or find ways to help them out. Um, there's an organization called Safe Refuge, which is a ministry that provides safe and healthy homes for children of families in crisis, often for a season. They stay with you maybe two, three months so that maybe mom can get some training so she can get a job or finish out rehab or whatever it might be. Um, there's fostering. There's adoption. Now, all of these are, are not for the faint of heart, <laughs> I I, I list those off like, oh, these are great. Just go out and do it. It's like, oh, this is is no small thing. But I'm saying there are some local ways that you can be involved. Globally, there's Compassion International, which I think is an excellent organization just to help sponsor a child and pray for that child and seek to interact with that child. We've done some things with the orphanages in Ukraine. Um, We've emphasized that as it relates to missions in general. Friends, there are ways that you can flesh this out. There's ways that the church has fleshed this out. The point is that God, he's not saying here now, based on this passage, go out and set up a ministry for orphans and widows. He's getting at the fact that a true follower of Christ who's been affected by the word will have a compassionate heart (laughs) that will bear fruit in, in seeing those who are less fortunate or in need and we'll seek to do something about that. Now, of course, in our culture today, there's also wisdom, right? Am I going to give money to this guy who's standing on the street and he has a sign? And when you find out that this guy actually goes out there every day and makes $400 a day doing that, and you're like, I don't know that he's quite that needy. Okay? You, I mean, there's a sense of what, you want to help those who truly are needy, right? And there's, there's got to be some wisdom there. And this is, this is our challenge. We're living in different times than when James was writing this letter. I don't think James has in mind the kind of red tape bureaucracy or training or background checks in order to help the less fortunate. I think what James was emphasizing here was that the people exercise hospitality in some way, shape, or form. Their homes in their communities to reach these people. I think what's happened is our Western culture to some degree has sanitized these issues to the point that we, we, And there's a good side to that, and there's a bad side to that. The good side is we don't usually see a group of orphans running around the streets. We don't usually have a group of widows hunkered down in a shack somewhere. There are programs for those groups of people. But the responsibility in society has been taken away ultimately from the people and the churches and has been taken up by the government. So even Christian organizations who start out uh, well by practically serving the less fortunate with their left hand and providing spiritual counsel with their right hand have effectively had their right hand lopped off because government says, you can't do this. And so the church is kind of left and well, what are we supposed to do? It's a challenge. I'm just saying, there's a challenge here. Now... What James is saying here is don't just develop the ministry, develop the heart. And you develop the heart, there may be a ministry that takes place that may not be formal. It may be practical. It may be you ministering to someone in your community who you know is less fortunate than you. Do you have a heart for that? (laughs) This is what true religion looks like. Third, it is also marked by a cleansed heart. It says to keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, these three examples are a picture of what a mature believer is in his or her being because they have the word implanted in their hearts. The world here is not talking about a place or the, or the globe. It's talking about an ordered system, a fallen society that wants nothing to do with God, so it leaves God out. A society that has its own system of values, its own philosophies, and its own morals, And typically, those morals, philosophies, and values are contrary to what the scriptures teach. So true religion, worthwhile religion, does not adopt those godless morals, philosophies, or values. No, they keep, which means they are regularly and consistently uh, keeping themselves unstained from that world. And so, according to James, adopting or embracing the morals, the philosophies, and the values of the world system is to be spotted or stained by the world. Now, probably a classic example from scripture of someone who became spotted or stained by the world is the story of Lot, Abraham's nephew. You find that, if you want to read that, Genesis 13 and 19. But first, There was this choice of where to live, and Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom, the evil city. Every day he gets up and he looks at it, right? And then in chapter 19, we find Lot where? Living in the city. And then ultimately, and finally, Sodom moves into him. That's just just kind of a practical application there, that, that we can put our heart towards something and then we end up finding ourselves in the place, and then that place then kind of comes and takes root in us. And friends, we're living in a culture where that is all around us. It all looks good, and there's a challenge to, to walk with God carefully, but then we, we kind of adjust and, 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 and marginalize here, and before long, things change, and the world system begins now to be taking root in us. Now, the James' answer is not, to, <laughs> is not the monastic movement, right? Get your people, go out, build a building out in the middle of nowhere, and you'll be away from all this sin. Now, what they found out in the monasteries is that they took their sin with them. What he is calling us to do is to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, there's no passage of Scripture that says that, but it's a statement that reflects sections of Scripture that talk about our need to be present in the world as shining lights in the darkness but not to be caught up and affected by that world so that we are pure and we're holy and right before God. We're not to be isolated from those in the world because when we isolate the salt or the light, it can't do its work. So you get these, this application. Not this kind of worthless religion, but a worthwhile religion. Here's, here's where we, we want to go. A man from, from China, a businessman, Visited the United Kingdom. This is um, probably about a century ago. He was a wealthy man and he was fascinated by a powerful microscope. And so he loved looking through the microscope and seeing things that were under the microscope, you know, just magnified. And it was just all so beautiful and the detail was so crisp. And he decided to purchase one of these devices and take it back to him, to his homeland. And he just thoroughly enjoyed it. It was like a hobby for him, just grabbing things and putting them underneath and looking and. One day he thought, well, you know, I'm going to pick up some rice and I'm going to put it underneath there. And as he did that, he looked down at the rice and what he saw was movement. In minuscule form, there were these little creatures crawling around on this rice. He didn't like that. He liked rice. And the idea of eating rice that had all these things in it was not good. And so he had to figure out what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And his conclusion was to get rid of the microscope. (laughs) Now, friends, we may begin well with the word of God implanted in our hearts, but we appreciate its beauty, its wisdom, its simplicity, its powerful impact and relevance to life. But we, we may also find that it tends to stir the pot of our hearts and uncover and expose thoughts and beliefs and practices that we love and are not willing to give up. And so we, in effect, want to rid ourselves of the implanted word. We're okay to be around it. We can deflect things on a Sunday morning when pastor's preaching. But we're not allowing it to take root, to affect our being. and That results in the kind of work that God wants to do in us. Abraham Lincoln famously said the following words. You may fool all the people some of the time. You can even fool some of the people all the time. But you can't fool all the people all the time. It's good. If you don't mind, I want to add something to that. You can fool yourself much of the time. But you can never fool God at any time. See, this is what James is getting at. You can be so self-deceived, even in the midst of your trial, that you actually listen to God's word, but you're not. Because you're not allowing it to affect your being, which then produces living application. And I want to draw your attention um, to the screen once again, because last week I ended our time by talking about these two goals that that James has in mind. This, to me, was fascinating in the study, but I hope it helps you see where our goal should be. But now there's three goals. (laughs) The first one is this. There's these trials, and the instruction is to remain steadfast in those trials, which then leads you to maturity. And that maturity is pictured for us there in verse 4. You're perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. What a great picture. Then he talks about the need for the Word of God. And that word of God needs to be implanted in your heart. And that leads then to maturity. And that maturity is described in verse 19, that you're quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. This is the fruit of all these things. Now, from our text today, we say, okay, there's a need to hear, but then that hearing needs to result in doing. And when that is true, there will be maturity. What does that maturity look like? Well, it's verses 26 and 27. 27. A controlled heart, a compassionate heart, a cleansed heart. You see, James is saying, listen, you're going through trials. You're going to go through trials. Remain steadfast. That will lead you to maturity. Receive the word when you're lacking wisdom. That will lead you to maturity. And then don't let it stop there. Press in once you've heard the word. Chew on it. Dwell on it. Seek to understand it better and apply it to your context and seek to live it out. And that will also produce maturity. Now the rest of the book is going to be a reflection of what James has already said in this chapter. This is in a sense an introduction to his letter. We're going to see some of these themes rise up. But his goal for, for his readers is to say, listen, remain steadfast. Receive the word. Live it out in these different situations, these different contexts. That's what we're called to do, friends. We're called to, to pursue maturity in our Christian walk. So my question to you is this. How do you see yourself pursuing maturity? How do you see yourself? Where do you see yourself on on this this path, so to speak, that James is laying out for us? I don't think any of us are in the right column. (laughs) I think we're all maybe working toward there. This is where we want to be. But there's some key things here that he's saying. Don't get angry at trials. Remain steadfast. Don't avoid the word. Let it be implanted. And allow that word then to bear fruit so that your living will reflect the word that you're receiving. Lord, help us today as we contemplate. Lord, there's just this powerful argument that James is making to those believers who have been scattered because of persecution, who are not only facing the testing of persecution, but practically speaking will face other tests that are part of their community. Help us, Lord, to learn from what James is saying. And in that learning, seek to be mature and growing in maturity in such a way that would honor and please you. We know that none of that growth toward Christ-likeness can take place unless we are first born again. Even James mentions that. It's the word of God that has given us this new life. But it's also the word of God that gives us life to live now. We need your wisdom, Lord. And I know across this this auditorium, there are people of all sorts of different circumstances. Different trials, different tests, different obstacles, different levels of maturity different comprehensions of how the word of God works in their lives. And Lord, we need you. We need you to to continue to to breathe freshness into us. Lord, give us a hunger for your word, not for, for knowledge, but for living. Give us a love for you that bears fruit in loving your word and living for you. Lord, we are desperate for you. We need you. But praise God, we have you. And you are enough. Thank you for the instruction this morning. May it build us up to be more like you.